Hi, guys, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Amy Hollenkamp. Hello, hello, everybody. Hello, hello. <laughs> and I am Vicki Danessa, and we are here to talk all things IBS. And in this episode, we're going to zoom in on SIBO root causes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Amy, care to start us off? Sure. I think it. with SIBO root causes, I mean, first off, and I remember this from personal experience, when you originally get diagnosed with SIBO, you think that that is your root cause. Totally. That's a huge misconception and something that's really easy to fall into because, you know, you've had these issues for a while and you might have your GI doc or some other practitioner being like, this is it. Like, this is the problem. We just need to take care of this and then you'll Mm -hmm. be good. And I feel that that's very simplistic. Uh, Yes, SIBO definitely drives symptoms, makes things worse, but it's so critical to dig deeper as to what's driving the dysfunction, what's what's creating the SIBO. SIBO yeah. develops because there's um, the environment in the gut has to be right for SIBO to develop. We have right. a lot of mechanisms internally to prevent SIBO. So really, when it comes to figuring out your root causes to SIBO, it's all about trying to determine what breakdowns are happening within the environment of the small intestines that that is leading to an overgrowth. And we'll definitely deep dive into, I shouldn't shouldn't necessarily necessarily say deep dive, but we'll touch on each of these pieces and probably deep dive in more detail as the podcast goes on. Yeah, and that's the thing is like, you know, SIBO, I think it's, I would say that SIBO is presented as the answer. And mm-hmm. I think SIBO can be the answer to why you've had X, Y, and Z for so long. But it's not a root cause in the sense that like, on some random Tuesday in 2014, your intestines didn't just say, you know, it would be great. Too many bacteria in the small bowel. Let's do that. Let's make it happen. Like, like you said, some protective mechanism, some check and balance system had to fall by the wayside or not do a good enough job that then things started to get weird and now you're off to the races and you have SIBO. So it's not like it just happens for no reason. And trying to understand those reasons for the individual can be really critical to make sure that you don't relapse and make sure that you actually treat the dang thing in the first place. Yeah, for sure. No, totally. I mean, I think that it's an area that gets a little complex. It's not usually a very uh, clean box as to what your root cause is. Usually there's multiple things interacting. Mm -hmm. Um, So usually there's root causes, not just like one root cause. So it's not necessarily like super linear. It's, It's a little bit messy, coming up with your root causes. Um, And I think that's why a lot of practitioners don't really go down that rabbit hole or or just don't really approach it. It's because it does get complex and it's hard to maneuver. But from my standpoint, it's where you're going to get the most long-term progress is if you can drill down, really understand your root causes and address them in a thorough manner. Um, and that way you're getting out of the very vicious cycle of like, well, I'm going to clear this SIBO and then it comes back and then you keep clearing it. You just get in this 
chronic vicious cycle if root causes aren't addressed. And just a really frustrating place to be, I think, both personally and just seeing it working with clients, feeling very frustrated with just that model because there's really no way out unless you address your root causes. Yeah. And I would argue, I think that you and I probably work with people exclusively who don't quite have a handle on the root causes of their SIBO. If it was a, you know, and I'll kind of use this a little bit facetiously, but if if somebody had a simple case of SIBO where, honest to God, the only thing going on with them is the overgrowth of the small intestine, those are the people who already went to the GI doctor, they got Rifaximin, it cured them, and now they're like, woo, I can eat anything, and they like live their life. It's the people who come to see us who are like, I've been on eight gazillion rounds of Rifaximin and it hasn't worked. Or I've done eight gazillion rounds of Berberine or Neem. It hasn't worked. It keeps coming back. What do I do? And they've had it up to here and then they find people like us. And we're probably one of the first, if not the first people oftentimes to address the idea of, well, why did you get SIBO? Yeah, exactly. And I, it's interesting what you're saying too about those cases that are quick and like, you know, cases we don't see ever are the cases where people, you know, do treat and then they they're fine. I would probably think still there was some sort of dysfunction that led to the overgrowth and maybe that resolved. So like maybe, maybe they had, um, maybe they, they got diagnosed with Hashimoto's or something or thyroid issues treated that and then found out they had SIBO and kind of cleared the SIBO and things went back to normal. Or, you know, maybe they had some a period of really high stress and that might have created yeah. the SIBO, but then it resolved. Like, yeah. I still think there's root causes there, but oh, like yeah. they probably resolved in order to have such high efficacy with the Rifaximin. Yeah. And I would argue the same. I think that, and and it's important to acknowledge too, and this is kind of like a, a functional medicine point that I make with a lot of my patients. Oftentimes when people talk about the root causes, so they're thinking, you know, I was normal, quote unquote. And then one day I was not normal. And for some people it's like, I got food poisoning and ever since my gut has been weird. Or I had this round of antibiotics and ever since my gut has been weird. So oftentimes when we talk about root causes in like the, you know, internet blogger spheric realm, that is a root cause, like the trigger, the thing that actually dumped you over the edge into dysfunction. That is a root cause, but it's one flavor. You've got the triggering event that actually shoved you off the edge of the metaphorical cliff. But then there's also the things that like nudged you closer to the edge of the cliff to begin with. Or if you're already dangling off of the edge of a metaphorical cliff and you're already in a dysfunctional state, it's going to make it much harder for you to progress and heal. So like those are the cases I see where people are like, but my stress didn't cause the SIBO, but whatever did. And I'm like, yeah, but if you're stressed up to here and your gut brain axis is fried, you're going to have a hard time healing and getting your tissues to work appropriately. So it might not be that stress caused the SIBO in the sense that stress isn't a trigger for the original SIBO, but it can keep you stuck in a rut 
and keep you from healing. And in that case, something like stress can be a root cause, even if you don't think it was the actual triggering event, right? Like there's, there's yeah. kind of two different types of root causes too. No, you're, you're 100% correct. I think, um, I mean, I'm often working on people's cases where I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a big notable thing right yeah. here. But like, they're not paying attention to it as something that they think could have been a factor in their case. I kind of yeah. view it as a very perfect storm type scenario. Yeah. So you get a perfect blend of maybe a lower fiber diet for a period of time, um, maybe some antibiotics mixed in, maybe, you know, you have periods of stress blipping up. And then maybe again, you have a food poisoning event that just kind of sets things off. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's always like a, a weird concoction of different things at play. It's not usually just this one clear cut thing, as you're saying. It's like this gradual buildup, and sometimes it's very subtle. But some of the subtle things can be huge factors. Yeah. And that's kind of analogous for the human experience anyway. Like (laughs) nothing happens in a vacuum. No body part works all by itself. What? Things I know. Conventional medicine. Hold your hats. Like this is going to blow your mind. The body works together. But I do think, you know, it's, it's worthwhile noting that. Like just because you didn't perceive those gradual steps towards that cliff of dysfunction, it doesn't mean you weren't still headed that direction. And there might have been periods where you were moving away from it and you were healing, but you are probably more likely to perceive that triggering event where you just went off the gutter and then off you go and now you have whatever your diagnosis is. Um, That's what we tend to be more consciously aware of at least. But that's where working with somebody who has less of a biased opinion and can look at it from a lens of, you know, just another pair of eyes, another pair of ears, another brain on the case can be helpful in dissecting that too. For sure. Yeah. And I, I think there has to be a very clear mentality shift. Like what you were saying, we're probably the few or only practitioner that people work with that are asking, why did you get SIBO? So there has to be that shift of mentality. It can't be just like clearing and killing and yeah. then SIBO's gone. There has to be that that ability to shift mindset and ability to dig deeper. Yeah. Um, and again, some practitioners are probably better at it than others. And I think we're very sort of specialized, which makes it easier for us to, to do. Yeah. Um, but you're totally right. That shift is is really important. Yeah. And even like before we hopped on this call, my patient that I just saw today, like we, I brought up that I'm suspicious of SIBO. We're going to order a breath test. And we talked about SIBO a bit. And then I went in the back to mix him up some herbal concoctions for his gut brain axis and then came back. And he was like, okay, I'm reading about SIBO, but like, what are the root causes? Like we need to get to the root causes. And I was like, oh, sweetie. I love that you asked that, first of all, but B, whether you realize it or not, I already screened out a bunch of the known SIBO root causes in the paperwork that you filled out before today's appointment. And then we went through some of the ones that I thought were more relevant for him. So that's something that I ask every single patient because I want to know, like, you know, do you have any of these things that will dump you over into SIBO land in and of itself? 
But yeah. if I, if I, uh, and I don't know if we'll have the same opinion on this, it'll be curious to see. Yeah. What do you think the number one most common triggering event or triggering thing would be amongst the people that you've worked with? And then I will share, I don't know if I could give it a, a number one clearly, but I think number one and number two are pretty close as far as like the triggering <laughs> event that people are consciously aware of and could go back and, and look back and go, oh yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll do you one better. I'll give you three because okay. I feel like it, it's Ooh. a little bit hard for me to do two because I feel like these three, okay. again, are my top. Okay. I would say stressful events um, yeah. or stressful periods of time. Maybe mm-hmm. they move, maybe they start a new job, maybe they're planning a wedding. Yeah. I, I see stress as being very heavily tied into gut function and a SIBO root cause. I would say food poisoning events, Mm -hmm. definitely up there in terms of triggering events. And then I'd also say antibiotics. Um, So if they took a round of antibiotics, maybe they had like chronic infections or something and Mm -hmm. they're kind of on them a lot. Maybe it's a one-off, but I do find, I do hear a lot of times where people were doing okay and then they took a round of antibiotics and it just was off ever since. So I'm yeah. curious to hear what your two were. Yeah, and it's curious because uh, one is the same and one is a different one that you didn't mention. Okay. Um, it's interesting because the antibiotics SIBO link, I think is now getting explored. I agree. I think I asked people, I have a part of my questionnaire where I ask like, how many rounds of antibiotics did you have in your childhood, in your adulthood, yeah. mm-hmm. like in the last, you know, year or two? And I, I can tell you as a child of the 80s, I had like 87 <laughs> humans worth of antibiotics yeah. in my lifetime. So I shudder to think of what that did to me. But um, I might not have put that so high on my list, just in part because it's so commonplace that people have so many antibiotics that maybe I'm losing sight of that. And how profound that could be as far as SIBO goes. Mm -hmm. I would have identified, well, see, this is unfair. Now I have to have a third because you had a third. (laughs) Yeah, So I would say stressful events also are in the top three that I've seen. Like, you know, husband lost his job and the mom was overworked and they've got, you know, a gaggle of children and they're putting strain on the relationship and then like I'm thinking of one case right now and then the mom started developing what was later diagnosed as mild gastroparesis Mm -hmm. and SIBO and it's like that's the only thing in her case that makes sense is that time frame they're like her husband didn't have a job and they were tight for cash it was really stressful Um, so stressful times or stressful events are definitely in the top three Um, food poisoning is a big biggie that I see quite frequently. And then also, um, acid suppression, like whether it be a proton pump inhibitor or something like Zantac, usually this is more associated with the proton pump inhibitors more than anything else. But I think that mucking with the stomach acid barrier is a very big root cause for SIBO for a lot, a lot of people. And I've had equally, I've had some SIBO patients that, we got rid of the SIBO. They were doing great. They were eating FODMAPs. They were happy mm-hmm. as a clam. And then they had a little bit of reflux and they made the mistake of going on Zantac or Prilosec at the recommendation of their PCP or whoever. And then they relapsed. And then they're calling me again. And I'm like, 
why are you calling me? You were good for like two yeah. years. And then it comes up. Oh, and I took Nexium for two months. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, that'll get you. Now you're here. So the acid suppression, I think, is a big one uh, that would round out my top three personally that I see. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Oh, for go ahead. Sorry. For sure. No, I think um, anytime you're hindering digestion in any capacity and with stump, proton pump inhibitors and things that are low, lowering stomach acid, those are clearly going to affect digestion, which has a lot of downstream effects in the small intestines mm-hmm. and just creates a lot of issues. Um, yeah. And the hard thing about PPIs, which I think is like so awful, is there's no end in sight with them. Like they're so hard to get off of. So, and I, I was on PPIs at one point. Mm. Um, I had like gastritis when I was 19. Mm. Um, And I specifically remember struggling to get off of them. And I was young. It's not like I was old, but what basically happens, like what people don't realize when they go on these PPIs is that their whole stomach shifts in in major ways like the cells of your stomach basically increase in size to Mm. to try to overcome the suppression of the stomach acid to help you digest and then when you go off of them you have these huge cells that then are pumping out a ton of acid yeah they're like acid producing powerhouses exactly so the floodgates are open with this acid it and it then you're like, well, shoot, like I'm super uncomfortable and now I'm feeling refluxy. I need this medication. So yeah. the, the hardest to quote Ursula from The Little Mermaid, the poor unfortunate souls <laughs> that are on these PPIs, honestly, because they're just such a hard thing to get off of. Yeah. And uh, But I, I agree to your point. If you ever want to optimize di- not only digestion but even nutrition, yeah, like PPIs lower a the ton worst. of different nutrients. <laughs> They're the worst. Um, yeah, they deplete so many nutrients. The stomach acid is super important to prevent pathogens as well. So. I mean, they're preventing pathogens. You need stomach acid to digest your food. I hate that. That's like the first line of defense whenever you have any stomach issue by the conventional sphere is, you know, try this PPI and see if it works. It They really get prescribed so willy-nilly, and it drives <laughs> me absolutely bonkers because it, they are prescribed in a way as though there's no repercussions or no exactly. side effects. And it's the opposite. So many people get side effects. Meanwhile... Freaking lactulose is a prescription in the United States, which drives me absolutely crazy. So that's that's like a whole other podcast episode in itself. But lactulose is so safe and well-tolerated and effective for so much stuff that I would use it for. But it's a freaking prescription. But we just give out Nexium and Omeprazole and Protonics just like freaking candy at Halloween. Yeah. um, (laughs) Rant over. So, for example, and this is not an ultra up-to-date book. I probably need to get another one that's more inclusive. But as an example, you know, mm-hmm. the side effect Bible, or I have another one, the nutritional cost of drugs, right out here, nutrients that are robbed from omeprazole, which is a PPI, beta carotene, mm-hmm. folate, thiamine, B12, iron, sodium, zinc. I happen to know also, I mean, iron, protein, magnesium. I'm for surprised sure. those didn't make the mix. Like all of those, you 
you have a harder time with. So the hats are off when you're on a PPI. Not only are you going to have to deal with the fact that you're not digesting and absorbing your nutrients and your freaking food, the pH shift that happens local in the stomach and also in the intestines further downstream Mm -hmm. affects digestion and it affects the microbial communities there. You know, you have bacteria like H. pylori that can be normal inhabitants of the stomach for, I think it's 70% of the population. But when that stomach acid is not there and the pH shifts and it's more alkaline, that's when H. pylori can get more rambunctious and it can cause you more problems and it can overgrow and and candida potentially in the stomach, which it, I was surprised a couple of years ago to learn that's a thing. Um, you're bucking well, with the microbiome local to the stomach as well as downstream, and that it's really no wonder why so many people get SIBO from these drugs. Yeah, I mean, in the the H. pylori thing blows my mind as well, because H. pylori is going to go out of control when you do that PPI, and <laughs> there's like you know, GI docs or even um, your GP might prescribe you a proton pump inhibitor without doing any thorough analysis that you might have H. pylori, which is just going to make the H. pylori issue way worse if you're taking the PPI. And to your point too, I think a a really, I just want to bounce off your point about digestion downstream Mm-hmm. which I think people miss the boat a little bit. Like they know oh, stomach acid's off and that's really important, but like we need food that the, the it's called chyme. It's like the yeah. mixture of food, stomach acid that's being digested in the stomach. Well, when it's ready to be spit out into the small intestines, it needs to be acidic enough to stimulate digestion in the small intestines. Exactly. And if that digestion isn't, up to speed and you don't have secretions like pancreatic enzymes, you don't have bile flow because Mm -hmm. that, that chyme wasn't acidic enough. You're going to get, you're going to have a lot of problems downstream and you're creating an environment for SIBO to overgrow. Totally. Yeah. And that's something I call it digestion dominoes. And I had a slide, I had a slide in my online course. I actually like took the moments to edit the picture and I like made what looked like a real board game. (laughs) I I amused myself way too much. Yeah. But you know, it's like if you, now there's other dominoes in place before stomach acid, which we'll talk about down the road. Yeah. But you know, if you don't have stomach acid, you don't get that local reflex to stimulate the release of pancreatic juices and bile. Yeah. And you also don't get a lot of the MMC waves and the motility Mm -hmm. stuff, let alone the shift in pH in the small intestine itself. Yeah. But you just, you don't get that, that synchronicity and that like harmony and you don't get that whole orchestrated chain of events. And it's like the dominoes stop falling and then the rest of the chain never falls. Yeah. So it's, it's a pretty big deal, stomach acid. It is. And I think that pH is something that's very fascinating in general because pH which again, we kind of, I remember like science class with those little strips. Yeah. Did you ever have those yep. little pH strips? Oh yeah. Um, but pH is like super critical just from a microbial growth standpoint, like certain microbes are going to grow at different pHs. So you really yep. want pH to be 
optimal and not off mm -hmm. because even that could affect what's growing and not growing in the small intestines. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, this is like a whole can of worms. We should obviously do a whole separate episode <laughs> we, we about should. stomach acid and pH and the shifts, mm -hmm. but we'll leave it, you know, this point, for example, this bullet point as it's a big freaking deal. Mm -hmm. These drugs are not without consequences. No matter how lackadaisically they are prescribed, they have a lot of consequences and they are a very common root cause of SIBO. Now, what's interesting, and I'll, I'll kind of get your opinion on this too. I don't know if you've observed this as well. Um, is it just me or was it that up until three, maybe four years ago, the research was very consistent on PPIs causing SIBO? like a startling amount of the time. Mm -hmm. I forget what it was, but somewhere around uh, along the road, I was reading studies that said, if you're on a PPI for more than like a month or two, there's a staggeringly high rate of SIBO already, let yeah. alone the people who are on it for years. And it was pretty clear at that point that PPIs cause SIBO, cold, you know, done, sealed deal. And then all of a sudden now, in the last three, four years, I've seen a lot of studies that are coming out that are saying, Nope, no association. You're all good in the hood, man. Keep keep taking your Nexium. <laughs> and I am so freaking suspicious of this. And I swear to God, this is my theory. You can tell me if I'm off my rocker. I really think that it's because the people who make these drugs, whether it be, you know, Pfizer or Bayer or whoever the company is, um, I think that there was enough popularity in the SIBO community. I think that was around the time when the first you know, online summit was happening. More clinicians are learning about SIBO. More people are learning about SIBO, more podcasts. I think as SIBO grew in its awareness and its popularity and more of this information got out there, my guess is that fewer people were taking these drugs. And I think that the drug manufacturers probably funded some of these studies, if I had to guess, to say like, oh, shoot, we're hurting in the pocketbook. Yeah, we're going to pop we're going to publish a handful of studies that say, nope, nope, no correlation. You're good to go. I find it really suspicious that the research was so consistent yeah. up until kind of the peak of SIBO. And now they're all saying, no, bro, you're good. <laughs> I, I find it very weird. Yeah, I do, too. And I remember, too, like there were even meta analysis. So like a conglomerate yeah. of different studies coming together. Multiple studies. Yeah. Improving that. Um they do uh, have a high correlation and are potentially a causative agent of SIBO. But then I remember specifically too, where I started seeing that shift and I had never thought about that. Um, but it makes sense to me. I think it's all the money. Yeah. I swear to God. It, it's, it's crazy. Um, how much, how much control the pharmaceutical companies can have on studies. Yeah. Um, so it's always important to try to do or work with someone that's doing a broad uh, look at the research and yeah. um, also just has a good understanding of physiology in general um, and yeah. how things work. Sometimes, again, studies, even on things we don't, totally understand. If you understand physiology, you can sort of piece things together. Studies yeah. can certainly be helpful at proving hypotheses that you might have, but 
Mm-hmm. I mean, what we understand of the stomach, it doesn't really make sense that PPIs wouldn't affect things downstream in the small intestines. Yeah. Uh, even regardless of the studies that do show correlation, I think just in general, what we know about the stomach, it doesn't make any sense that there wouldn't be any effect. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of and my take. I agree. I think it's important. And this is kind of a, a little bit of your soapbox moment. I think it's important <laughs> that, and this goes, you know, this goes out to clinicians. It goes out to normal people too. Um, you and I, and you know, we could all hop on PubMed all day, every day, and we can get lost in the weeds of reading this study and that study about this thing and this thing and this cell and this bacteria. But at the end of the day, what actually matters is what the human body responds to. And mm-hmm. I've seen, you know, even ignoring, for example, like the research, I think that in this regard, like the research on PPIs and stomach acid suppression led me down a path to paying attention to this. Right. It's not like every person who's on Nexium and like, you have SIBO automatically yeah. done. Seal deal. But it's like it's alerted me to keep my eye out for that. Yeah. And what I've observed clinically over the years is that those people, especially people who have had months or years of being on these drugs, they do very consistently have SIBO. And getting their stomach acid functioning again or getting, you know, working with the reflux and working on getting them off of those drugs and bolstering their stomach acid and getting those digestive juices logged online is a very critical part of the process of working with SIBO. And I also have seen patients relapse when they take another PPI or Zantac or whatever. Or even I think even if you use Tums more than occasionally, I think even something like that could be problematic. Like I know one patient I can think of, you know, she had a lot going on. So there was a lot to unpack. But one of the things that came up was her, I think, primary care had recommended that she chew on two Tums every day for a calcium supplement. Yeah. And I was like, no, this is horrible advice. Please stop. So I had her start on some other supplements and I had her start on some oat straw and doing some nutritional things. Like we're trying to get calcium in other ways because you can't do dairy like me. We got other sources of calcium on board so we could get her off the freaking Tums. Yeah. And her IBS got way better. And she was on those Tums, chewing on those Tums every day for a calcium supplement for years by the time she got to me. So even something like that, it's not going to be as heavy of a hitter as something like Prilosec or Omeprazole or Protonics. But I do think that that's enough if you do it every day, that even something like Zantac or Tums could be problematic for this in a you know similar vein. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of two or three clients that uh, did Tums at least daily, and I think it caused a huge problem in working off my, Tums. My and... grandmother. I yeah. look back at my grandma, and I exactly. wish to God I could go back in time <laughs> and tell her, A, I think my grandmother actually probably had celiac disease that none of us knew. And B, like the BS that the doctors told us caring for her as she got older, she was on Tums every single day as a calcium supplement for, I mean, probably decades. Yeah. And I look back and I'm like, I wish I could go back and tell her, like, or tell my mom and dad who took care of her, like, no, (laughs) this is a bad idea. But they didn't know. You know, you trust the authorities in your life. You trust the doctors and you just run with what they tell you. Um, 
but anyway, I think that, uh, you know, getting off of these drugs in whatever capacity you can. Side note, neither of us are prescribers. I'm yeah. not a prescriber. You're not a prescriber. So you need to work with your doctor or find somebody who can work with you on this. You could do the herbs and you could do strategies to get rid of the reflux and get to a point where you don't need the medication. Yeah. But better safe than sorry. Work with somebody who knows what they're doing on this. Don't just like willy nilly stop taking your protonics because we said so in a podcast. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> um, but having a strategy in place to get off of those can be like earth shatteringly important if you mm-hmm. have IBS and SIBO. So I do think that's worth addressing. Yeah. Um, moving on. Now, this could be, again, a whole other podcast episode in and of itself, but let's touch base on one that we also both identified, which was stress. And that Mm -hmm. whole, you know, I'll I'll tell you, I don't remember if I told you this when we did our first episode about our stories. My gut was never worse than when I lived with my crazy ass roommate. (laughs) I, I call her Crazy Carol to this day. Crazy Carol, if you're listening, my God, can we? <laughs> I don't know what to say to you. Talk more about Crazy Carol and later. I I want to kind of bring sure. up Carol all the time. Sure. Crazy Carol. Absolutely, and we could call all crazy people Crazy Carol from now on. Yeah, kind of um, like Karen. But, yeah, exactly. She'll be our Karen. <laughs> but like when she, we we literally got in an argument about gluten, like you do. Yeah. And I had gone gluten free, and she thought that I believed that everybody on planet earth needed to be gluten-free and she got mad at me like a crazy person yelled at me and said nikki not everybody needs to be gluten-free and she like slammed her door i was like well that was weird and we had friends we had friends over we were having like a movie night i was like sorry guys that was trey awkward i don't know what her problem is and she slammed her door and then i went i visited a friend for like the weekend and i came back like sunday night and crazy ass carol did not talk to me for a month and a half. Oh my gosh. And that little squirt of a five foot three run, I'm six feet tall, so I could call her that, but she was stomping around in the apartment and slamming cupboards and slamming doors and being the most <laughs> passive aggressive psychopath ever and not talking to us. And my poor third roommate, who thank God is like the most awesome human on the planet Earth, she kept me as sane as I was. But when Crazy Carol was at her craziest and not talking to me before Mamie and I moved out, I mean, I just like everything made me bloated. Everything made my, my intestines cramp to a point where I thought she was putting gluten in my food intentionally because that was the genesis of the fight. I thought oh she was gosh. like sprinkling flour in my food. But in actuality, I look back and I remember thinking my like I could drink water and get bloated. Yeah. Literally like anything I put in my body. And I look back and I'm like, well, yeah, because your gut brain axis was shot you were stressed to begin with in graduate school, let alone when Crazy Carol had her snap moment and wasn't talking to you for a month and a half. And I look back at past Nikki and I'm like, oh, sweetie, take some ashwagandha or something or get out of the house. And, you know, I can speak from that very, like, obvious firsthand experience. There are stressors where in the moment you're like, I'm stressed. And then looking back, you're like, I was stressed. But then there's other ways that you could be stressed and potentially be pretty oblivious. And I've had moments like that too, where I, I, in the moment I would have told you, no, I'm not stressed. And now looking back, I'm like, Oh, I was crazy stressed. Yeah. And I just, I was like bottling it up into like a tight ball, shoving it down. (laughs) (laughs) And 
that's the American way. Yeah. <laughs> is to just bottle it up and shove it down. And it's not serving anybody. But I do think a lot of us uh, have some degree of gut brain axis dysfunction or adrenal fatigue or dysfunction or just stress. And it affects every cell in your body. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, for me, my gut issues definitely were on a negative trajectory due to stress for a long period of time prior to when my gut issues really kind of went overboard. And I would say a, a stressor that took my gut issues to the next level was starting a new job. Mm. Um, that, and I, it, it's a job in our company that I work, the company I worked for was like growing 20% each year. So like the growth of this company was insane. Mm. Um, and it, it's like a tech, it's like kind of like a techie company that I worked at, but just the amount of work that was expected. Mm. And I was doing like a lot of high level projects for like board members and stuff. And I was like a new, mm. I had just graduated. So it was just crazy. And then I had yeah. to like, my boss didn't know all the projects I was working on and like couldn't help me prioritize. Mm. That was definitely like a huge straw that broke the camel's back in my particular yeah. case. I would say yeah. too, I tended to feel like I thrived when I was under stress, like mm. just in general. Um, yeah. I think in general, I think too, I was under a lot of physical stress throughout my life and building up to this as well. Like my workouts were very endurance heavy and I don't mm. think that helped my gut. I think sometimes we don't connect that there's physical stressors that play into everything. So definitely mm. my workouts weren't helping my mental, emotional stress at work. Um, and just working with clients, I do, it's opened my eyes in a lot of ways on how what you were saying the american way of like bottling things up and shoving them down yep. <laughs> we tend to value being stressed out so totally. it's really hard to unpack that so i always try to look out for it and i always try to make a point with the clients i work with too and say you know our goal is not to get rid of stress you're always going to have some level of stress um, and there's actually good stress too, and that can af affect mm -hmm. your physiologic, physiologic, oh, physiology in a similar way as bad stress as well. But there's always going to be stressors. You might have a new job, you might have a new kid, you might have a new house, you might, you know, have a death in the family. Like there's always something I feel like yeah. going on. Um, and it's about raising your tolerance to stress. Yeah. And I think that exactly. concept is really helpful because it's not like you have to, you know, cut out every relationship that's stressful or cut out everything that's stressful. You have to quit your job. Like some jobs you might need to quit if they're if they're overly yeah. stressful. But most of the time you can sort of raise your tolerance to stress and it's not necessarily that the job's bad in any way. It's that your tolerance of stress is low. Your stress bucket is overflowing and you can make yeah. that stress bucket bigger by doing certain strategies Absolutely. Um, and removing things that you can, but the goal is to not have no stress. 
Yeah. I mean, I oftentimes joke with patients and I actually, I told my patient that I just saw today about this, that I can't get rid of your stress. I wish I could. Yeah. Unless if I told all of my patients to quit their job, <laughs> yeah. abandon their family and move to the beach and just get like a beach house and lay around naked on the beach all day and catch like wild caught ocean fish and like grow organic produce and lay around to get vitamin D and like have sex on the beach all day. <laughs> That's the ideal state of human physiology. Yeah, and yeah. that would be the zero stress situation. Assuming that like other people are cleaning your house and doing stuff for you. Shy of doing that. I don't think I can take away all stressors in your life. So it's not practical for me to attempt it. But if we can help your body tolerate it. So instead of having this like insane roller coaster that we're all used to, where it's like, Oh, I'm having a good day. Oh my God, I'm stressed. I'm yeah. having a good day. I'm stressed. Oh my God, I'm bottoming out. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> if you could do things in your life, like I'm a nerd for herbs. So things like ulithro, ashwagandha, ginseng, mm. licorice, holy basil. I mean, the list goes on and on. Passion flower. So many of these herbs can take your roller coaster from this to this. Yeah. So like you're still going to have more stressful days and less stressful days. But at least you're not going to be like going nuts and scrambling as much and then bottoming out and being fatigued and then going nuts. And like it, it makes the rat race much more tolerable and it can increase your tolerance and to your point, make your bucket bigger. Um, yeah. yeah I, well, and I, that's my angle. And then things like meditation, having hobbies. I mean, I'm into painting right now and it's like the best stress relief I think I've ever had in my entire life <laughs> nice. because I'm painting all, all the time and I love it. So you know, it depends what you would get joy out of and what would help empty that bucket for you. But um, there's a lot of ways to pet a cat. So it's not like you have to take ashwagandha or you have to do meditation. They're both great, but pick the things that call to you. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. You know, meditation's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but you can find something that works. I will yeah. say on the stress side of things, um, with some of the physical stressors, so like things like poor sleep, uh, maybe movement is too intense or not enough, or mm -hmm. maybe uh, circadian rhythms are out of balance. Like I do think those things really anchor our stress response as well, mm -hmm. which like tend to go unrecognized a lot of times when we think of stress as like, oh, I need to, I definitely need to do stress management, which is very important. I'm not saying it's not, totally. um, but recognizing too that like lack of sleep is a stressor um you know not getting sun is a stressor uh and yeah. you know just point, not it, moving yeah or overtraining exactly stressors, stressors. Um, eating not enough calories stressor freaking stressor i know my gosh that's a such a big one i think in the SIBO space um yeah. so i just think Sometimes we view stress in a narrow lens when it should be seen in a broader lens. So I just wanted to make sure like people weren't just yeah. focusing on like, oh, I'm not, I feel like I'm good, like mentally, emotionally, but then like their lifestyle habits are not great in terms of sleep, yeah, um, movement, that sort of thing. You can always try to, to pull the levers of the physical stressors as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, you could think of it as all of these things will cause um, 
you can think of it as inflammation or disruption of bodily processes, or you could just think of them as stressors. And there are, there's physical stressors and emotional stressors or like psychological stressors, and they both will take a toll on the body. And your body, your body's very smart, but it's also very dumb in the sense that your body just perceives I'm stressed and that's enough. It doesn't particularly matter if it's actually life-threatening or if it's, you know, this like chronic bubbling BS that we deal with, or if it's overtraining or, or not moving enough, your body is just going to register, oh my God, stress. And then stuff shuts down and stuff gets weird. So all of those, I think, are really great points to be made. And again, this could be an entirely separate episode. Mm-hmm. But let's, um, let's segue into one of my favorites, if I may selfishly pull us this direction. The other one that we both talked about was food poisoning. Mm-hmm. And... This is going to be a whole separate topic altogether, but I do want to just mention that is another really, really common SIBO root cause that I see. Um, there are, you know, the testing for it, for example, like the anti-vinculin antibodies and the way it's talked about by the companies and the researchers who are doing the bulk of that research, they will talk about it under the umbrella of post-infectious IBS. Realistically, there's two variants within that world. Mm -hmm. There's the post-infectious IBS in the sense that somebody gets food poisoning, they are acutely unwell, and then they don't really recover from that, and it can take them a year or two to fully recover. But they do eventually recover on their own within the span of a year or two. So that's that's what I would personally call post-infectious IBS, truly. The stuff that it's the the anti-CDTB antibodies, which we'll talk about in another episode. It's that reaction against the bacterial toxin and the damage from the bacterial toxin. And your body does eventually recover. And they spontaneously recover. I forget what the stat is, but it's like, you know, 30% of the time or something. All on their own with absolutely no intervention. So that's what I would deem post-infectious IBS. And I realize I'm going against like the guy who does a lot of research. (laughs) The other variant of it is the people who have a different presentation where they get food poisoning. Maybe they're acutely unwell for a period of time. Maybe they have that like post-infectious IBS that resolves after a few months or a year or two. Maybe they don't. But then somewhere down the road, usually a few months later, but sometimes it could be weeks, you know, or a little bit longer. But somewhere down the road, those people then develop IBS And what we found is that those are the people with the anti-vinculin antibodies, the antibody against self-tissue. And now that autoimmunity has caused SIBO. So that's the difference. I think that post-infectious IBS is probably more of an inflammatory state and a dysbiotic state than anything else. And it's that wave of dysbiosis secondary to the food poisoning versus, you know, I call this other variant of PIIBS, I call it autoimmune SIBO or autoimmune dysmotility, where now we have to do things to treat the SIBO, but we also need to do things to manage and pacify your immune system so that it chills the F out and stops attacking your nerves in your intestines because that's what's happening. And now we have kind of a different story and a different trajectory that we have in place. But that's where you know, the post-infectious IBS can turn into SIBO. It's usually it happens a little bit later because it takes a while for that autoimmunity to ramp up. 
And I have had some of those patients where we're talking and it's like, you know, I make like a timeline in my notes whenever I'm going through a new patient chart and I'm asking them a gazillion questions and I'm trying to put them all in a timeline and I'll observe sometimes I'll be like, huh, IBS was first popping up in like 2015. Oh, 2014, you had food poisoning. Isn't that interesting? Let's talk about that more. Mm -hmm. And that's where I start opening the door for like that type of testing. I think that probably is a good enough place to leave it unless you have anything noteworthy to add to that. But I think this is a whole other topic in and of itself, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the antibinculin and the antibody, kind of like what you're saying, the autoimmune SIBO component is almost a different animal in and of itself than, than just the typical dysbiosis that follows a food poisoning event. Um, I think that one thing too, and you, you can let me know on this when it comes to the autoimmune response, I've heard that some of those antibody levels drop over time. Hmm? What's the time? Have you heard like specific timelines? Because I've heard it like all over the board. I'm just curious what what your specific timeline typically is. Is it like are you saying with antivinculin specifically or autoimmunity more broadly? Uh, antivinculin specifically. So basically, yeah, what I've know. heard is that sometimes it dips over time. Like usually, mm-hmm. the longer it's been since your food poisoning event, there's a dip in that antibody over time yeah i think potentially um what i would say is that and this is not necessarily from a research perspective because honestly we only they only started really figuring out the anti-vinculin autoimmunity and that kind of stuff in the last like five or ten years so we don't have a tremendous amount of that research i think um we're picking up steam now and like pimentel's group is doing a lot of this but at least we don't have a lot of like longer term studies on anti-vinculin and I think it's still picking up steam. Um, it, there's a higher likelihood that the anti-vinculin antibodies will have dropped if you are doing things to pacify and appease the immune system. Yeah, that's... So if, if during that time between your food poisoning event and the onset of this autoimmune dysmotility and the point where you get it diagnosed, for example... You know, if you also discovered you were vitamin D deficient and then started taking vitamin D, or if you also started an exercise regimen, or if you also, you know, started like eating more fiber and working on your gut microbiome, those are the kind of scenarios where it wouldn't surprise me if antivinculin starts to drop because you start basically treating the inflammation and treating the autoimmunity, whether you realize it or not. But the scenarios where you haven't done those things and maybe like in a really bad scenario, maybe somebody's like eating McDonald's four times a week and, you know, like eating a standard American diet and not moving, not managing their stress. Like those are the scenarios where I would think that anti-vinculin would probably persist just like any other autoimmunity. Yeah. Um, No, I think that's a, uh, again, a really good point and something that I've always believed in that in the post-infectious, or I should say in your case, like the more autoimmunity type SIBO that there, if the immune system's off, that is something that you can manipulate. So totally. there's a I mean, lot there's of a gut, if nothing else. Yeah, exactly. You can manipulate the gut environment. 
um, to potentially bring those levels down. Again, we, we don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of, of this, like what you're saying, we're, yeah. the research is continuing to be done, yeah. but theoretically, like we've talked about before, just understanding how the body works, to me, that's that's something that, that's levers that we can pull on as practitioners too. Um, and I think it's a really important factor because I do think sometimes when people think autoimmunity, they're like, geez, like that's a forever thing. Yeah. But I think well, it's important just to know that you can pull on levers to manipulate the, the, yeah. um, the environment and the immune system so that the, it can become, it can become, what's the word? I'm well, like, it, it can be your ally. Yeah, again, it can be your ally again. Not necessarily your enemy. For sure. You're, that's exact, exactly how I would have put it. So thanks for yeah. the, the help. We're cosmic litter mates. Yeah, we already established that. For sure. Um, I made you a brain. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, and I'll say, like, I don't want to speak for Dr. Pimentel, and I don't want to, like, you know, say things that I shouldn't say, but I know that from a webinar, for example, he he basically talked about some of their studies, uh, and I believe this is still unpublished, but they have reason to believe, and they have shown, that if you lower anti-vinculin antibodies in these individuals who have it, that the uh, the IBS slash SIBO yeah. uh, goes away. Yeah. So that... You know, it's not practical for me to stick a needle in your vein, suck out all the antibodies, and spit them into the garbage. What? But I know if I if I could, I'd be rich. You kidding me? Yeah. But um, I think the more practical standpoint, and again, like borrowing from functional medicine and my field, is that if we could do things to get the immune system to chill out, so it doesn't make antibodies against self tissue. And if we can work on that autoimmune process and that inflammation, then that will lower your anti-vinculin antibodies more than likely. And then that's the ticket to making sure that you don't relapse and continue to have SIBO. And admittedly, this is where like, I'm a good clinician, but I'm a lousy researcher in a regard. Because honestly, I've seen so many of these cases and I've measured anti-vinculin on so many cases. I honest to God probably should be doing some sort of study and yeah. using my data in that way. Um, I haven't. And part of it is, like, ideally, I think somebody like me, I would measure these antibodies, see it be positive once. And then every year, I would be retesting these antibodies and checking in on people. Or every six months, I would be rechecking. I'm not doing that right now just because I'm trying to be mindful of people's budgets. Yeah. And I'm always very sensitive about that. And the test, it, you know, it's like a $200 test, so it's not an insignificant amount of money. But truthfully, if I was a better researcher and maybe a slightly less compassionate physician in that regard, um, I would just be telling everybody, all right, you had this positive once, let's remeasure in six months, and we're going to keep tracking the data points until it's negative. Um, I wish I had that data to share, but I don't. But I do yeah. think with my experience lowering autoimmune antibodies in other conditions like Hashimoto's yeah. and seeing those antibodies get better and symptoms resolve as the antibodies decrease. I do think that a lot of the same stuff that my colleagues and I talk about all day, every day, like vitamin D, turmeric, whatever it might be. I think that those strategies would still work for anti-vinculin because it's just, it's just another flavor of autoimmunity. You treat yeah, it the same way. For sure. For the target sure. tissue is just different. 
and you know that it's going to probably lead to SIBO for you so that you treat the SIBO if it's there. Yeah. And I just, again, like to highlight the point that you can manipulate the immune system and it isn't necessarily a forever thing. I just want to make sure people understand that because I, I do think a lot of times when I talk to people who have had food poisoning, there is like and they know about antivinculin and they're like, oh man, I'm just like doomed with this thing because yeah. I have this antivinculin and that's not the case. Yeah. I think that those are the people who you need to be mindful of certain things yeah. probably indefinitely because autoimmunity in truth doesn't go away in the sense it doesn't get cured. Yeah. But it, remission is a very real thing and remission is damn near as good. For so, sure. So yeah, like... You know, that doesn't mean that you take vitamin D for two years, you get the antivinculin to go away, and then all of a sudden you get to go walk around without vitamin D in your veins. Like, you still need to do the strategies, the stress management, getting enough sleep, moving your body, getting vitamin D. Like, you still need to do those things and be mindful of that and not let your body get too inflamed because you know the target tissue that your immune system is going to go after if things get weird again. But... I don't think that you need to be like doomed to have SIBO forever. I mean, I know that's not the case because I've treated enough of this to prove like that is not the case. You treat yeah. the autoimmunity concurrently with the dysbiosis or SIBO or both. And these people will go into a remission state and it's awesome. It's the next yeah. best thing to an actual cure. So it is fabulous. But um, let's wrap up with some other SIBO cause. We don't have to go quite as in depth as we did on these handful that we talked about, but I think we covered the big biggies anyway, because these are the ones that are most common, certainly. But some other things that I think are associated with SIBO as a root cause could be adhesions. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. if you've had experience with this with your patients also, but um, yeah, you know, I've had a couple of ladies. I can remember clear as day, two of them. I saw them back to back, oddly enough. And both of them were like, I had my kid 25 years ago. I had a C-section. And then the like the IBS started up and both of them were diagnosed with SIBO. And literally the only thing that makes sense in the timing of it was C-section scars and adhesions. Yeah. And I referred both of them out to get visceral manipulation because I didn't do it at the time. And I've seen this where like, I, I think C-sections, particularly older ones where like the surgery might've been a little bit different or they might've opened yeah. it up a little bit more are potentially a cause um, appendectomies and, you know, gallbladder removals and other sort of surgeries. Maybe, I, I think it's maybe a little bit less problematic, but it can be a, a cause for adhesions for people. Um, endometriosis, mm-hmm. too. Like those endometrial, those chunks of endometrial tissue that can adhere to the bowel and disrupt motility. Like that can be essentially like a scar tissue or an adhesion situation. Or even something like Ehlers-Danlos or like weird, these weird like connective tissue disorders that can cause f- funky ways that your body lays down connective tissue and fascia and that could disrupt motility. Um, so I think that adhesions is another big SIBO root cause. And then obviously part of the treatment for that would be to do some sort of physical mechanical work to break that up or release that if you can. Yeah. Uh, No, I've definitely seen, I mean, on top of my head, I can think of like three or four cases where visceral manipulation has been huge for, for 
these particular cases that I'm thinking of. Um, yeah. In things like C-sections, I've seen yeah. be a factor. Um, I do agree with the endometriosis aspect, too, potentially being uh, adhesive um, or have adhesions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the endometriosis is really interesting, too. There was a study um, on how, because I think that, honestly, some of the microbial dysbiosis can lead to more endometriosis flares. I mean, it's an issue with inflammation most of the time. So I think in general, endometriosis and SIBO are very highly linked. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, in certain studies, things like antibiotics, which again, isn't necessarily the method that I would use for this, but antibiotics have been shown to decrease lesion size in endometriosis patients, which is super fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's kind of one of those situations where I do think like the visceral manipulation plays a really big role in decreasing some of the symptoms, but you still want to make sure you're addressing the gut aspect because it could be, it could be leading to more adhesions. But I think that's with adhesions in general. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think adhesions in general, um, and, you know, they're like with endometriosis, as an example, there are things that you can't get rid of. So, like, we can't go yeah. back in time to 1982 and prevent you from having a C-section. Yeah, exactly. What we yeah. can do is we can try to mobilize that tissue and keep it pliable and keep it moving so that stuff doesn't adhere. And similarly, like endometriosis, you're not going to get rid of those endometrial lesions, those chunks of tissue that are just hanging out in the bowel or in the abdominal cavity. But if you could shrink the size of them and make them so that they're less inflammatory and less like active, if you will, um, that's where like maybe working on hormones in conjunction with the SIBO stuff is like working on your inflammation, working on estrogen dominance, if that's a thing for you, that's not uncommon with that group, like making sure that those endometrial lesions are not big and inflamed and ticked off 24 seven, that will be part of the healing process. And then by all means, have somebody move your innards around and like do visceral manipulation and try to work on that front as well. But I do think that making sure that the physical state of the tissue is such that things can move and things can do what they're supposed to do. And they're not all like adhered and wonky in weird ways. Yeah. Um, So I think that that's there. I don't think it's, you know, I, I don't think that having a C-section dooms you to having SIBO. And yeah. I don't think, you know, appendectomy or gallbladder removal, I don't think those doom you. But I do think it it can be a root cause for certain people. Yeah. And it's worth parsing out. Um, I've also, now this should not be a surprise, but I'll make mention of it. Um, gastric bypasses are an area of interest of mine that I occasionally mm. read up on a little bit because mm-hmm. my mom had an open ruin Y in 2008 and that is a group of people also the gas the post gastric bypass or bariatric surgery group that has a startlingly high rate of SIBO and you know with the ruin y for example they literally chop out the first part of the small intestine called the duodenum they chop it out and they bypass it entirely and they're changing the size of the stomach and in my mom's case she had her gallbladder removed at the same time And that, you know, you want to talk about a major abdominal surgery. 
Um, the gastric bypass, particularly yeah. the Y, is huge. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if SIBO is so highly associated with that group because of the scar tissue or because they changed the size and the digestive capacity of the stomach or because they bypass the duodenum, which is <laughs> what? huge. Yeah. And like, that's where like the MMC waves, which we'll talk about in future podcast episodes, like 70% of them start in the stomach and then progress through the intestines, through the duodenum. And then the rest of them pretty much, I think, I think the other 30% begin in the duodenum. And it's just, it's bananas that they just chop that out and bypass it all together. And then they leave it dangling there, flapping in the wind. And so I don't know, these people also tend to have a lot of nutritional deficiencies because of the malabsorptive procedure. So I don't know what, you know, quadfecta of situations happens, but that's another abdominal surgery that whether it be from adhesions, the malabsorption, you know, the size of the stomach, the digestive capacity, whatever it is, those people have a lot of SIBO across the board. So that's another area where this could overlap with the current conversation. Yeah, no, I, I think that stomach surgeries in general are, are fascinating to me. I know there's actually a surgery or at least there was where they like clip the vagus nerve. Are Mm -hmm. you familiar with that? Yeah, vagotomy. Yeah. That just blows my mind. But, uh, (laughs) um, but no, you're totally right. I think that like, I, I'd imagine the issues with gastric surgeries just from a digestive stomach, just from a stomach acid standpoint, not even the... Yeah, if nothing else. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's wild. Um, I will say another sort of root causal factor that I have been really heavily keeping my eye on, um, and I've been doing a lot of work with is like liver bile flow issues. Mm. Um, I mean, there's definitely links with, in the research with liver, like more liver disease. So severe liver issues and SIBO, but Mm. I do tend to think like, I mean, a lot of people with SIBO, if they're having like die off reactions, like that's always like a bing, 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 like a red flag for me when they come to see me and they're like, man, I just like haven't been able to tolerate herbals. Maybe their liver enzymes are a little elevated in their mm-hmm. labs, um, sometimes their bilirubin's a little bit elevated, which mm-hmm. can sometimes be associated with poor bile flow. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's an issue, especially in methane cases, mm-hmm. um, just because bile bile tends to help with constipation, bile flow. Mm-hmm. It helps to stimulate yep. uh, motility. Mm-hmm. It also tends to feed hydrogen sulfide. Uh, bacteria Mm. so it can balance it can basically compete with your methane producers Mm. um but i do think that bile bile in general could be antimicrobial as well it it helps control the ph in the environment in the small intestines so if you don't have that mechanism running really efficiently i've seen that be huge for certain people um and I don't really think it's talked about much in the SIBO mm-hmm. space, but yeah. I will say I've seen a lot of people respond really well. One one case in particular that I'm thinking of was a woman who was maybe about 35, um, had been working on SIBO for a while, but she had real like severe pains that would creep up. 
Um, mm-hmm. And she kept getting her gallbladder looked at. And she was basically diagnosed. I forget what the phrase is, but it's basically like they, they think there's a gallbladder issue, but they there's no mechanism mm-hmm. that they can see. Gallbladder sludge? Did they see sludge on the no, they I don't think no. they saw anything. Oh. Um, but gallbladder sludge, again, to me, would be an indicator that bile flow is not great. Um, but I do think bile, in her case, we really worked on the liver. We worked on getting bile flowing optimally and she stopped having these really severe attacks. Um, but just from what I've seen, again, working with people, I just think it's a really big area. The liver also takes a huge, is, has a huge burden when there's gut issues in general. So I find that the liver is often very depleted in SIBO just from Mm -hmm. maybe years of dealing with excess toxins. Um, And the liver is producing the bile and sending it to the gallbladder and then the gallbladder spits it out into the small intestines. But if your liver Mm -hmm. isn't healthy, you're going to have poor bile production. Um, And then you really want the gallbladder to be able to to deliver the bile. And then if you haven't had, if you've had your gallbladder removed, that kind of creates other issues, but you could still have poor bile flow in that case from the Mm. liver, not producing it if you had your gallbladder removed. But I'm not sure if that's something you tend to see often, but it is like one that more recently I've heavily focused on because I've seen it be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to your point, um, you know, the bile is antimicrobial. Mm-hmm. It helps set the pH of the small bowel. Um, not to mention, like, you need bile to just digest your food and your fat. And fat malabsorption is not uncommon with the SIBO folk and the IBS folk. Um, but another thing that I'll, I'll kind of piggyback off of, which is interesting. I was reading an article not that long ago. I was making a presentation for my online course. And one of the things that came up was this idea of, like, what things need to happen to start the MMC waves, those clearing Mm -hmm. cleansing waves in the small intestine. And they, you know, most of the research we've got focuses on motilin. It's like, all right, it's motilin. We have to get motilin going. That's the answer. But then some people are trying to figure out, all right, but what triggers motilin release? And one of the things that I was reading about is that it might be the gallbladder emptying. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a fasted state if the gallbladder empties that seems to precede and possibly stimulate motilin release and then that gets the mmc going and then boom you're going to get rid of your SIBO because you have a proper functioning mmc wave and or waves plural so i think even you know even away from mealtime the potential for this to have broad broad reaching healing capacity for SIBO is really pretty profound um so i I think to that point and with the gallbladder removal people gosh (laughs) it's so tough like i pretty much i don't know about you but i put all of them on oxbile yeah straight out Mm -hmm. the gates and i tell them you know when they ask me how long do i stay on this until you sprout a new gallbladder (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's the thing like i mean herbal medicine is wonderful and supplements are wonderful but we're trying to combat effed up anatomy now yeah like you're missing an organ so this is a forever thing for you, you unless mean you the try gall- one. you mean the gallbladder is important and it it right it can't be removed <sighs> um well conventional medicine i tell you yeah and i 
I think it's interesting too what you're saying about, um, you know, bile, bile being a factor in the MMC waves because it is it is an ingredient in a lot of the prokinetics. Like artichoke leaf mm-hmm. extract is mm-hmm. mainly something that's going to stimulate bile yeah. flow. Yeah. Uh, I've seen in, in a couple different prokinetic, herbal prokinetic formulas. Yeah, quite a few. Um, so, again, I think bile is like a really fascinating area that, again, doesn't... I don't see getting tons of attention in the SIBO space. Maybe I'm not looking in the right places, but... I feel like you're right because, honestly, I follow a lot of, like, SIBO experts and gut health gurus yeah. in on the internets. And I think the only person who's ever done a post about it is you, honestly, because I've been following your stuff for years. And I think that you're the only one who's really done a post about it directly that I can think of off the top of my head. And I follow quite a lot of people. So I don't I don't think you're incorrect. I think that you're the only person really talking about it, to the best of my knowledge. So go you first off. Okay. yeah, I think think it is relevant and important. Yeah, no, for sure. And again, I've definitely seen people have improved motility, have um, improvements in in symptoms just by uh, focusing in on their bile flow. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, definitely something I see a lot of. And I think one of the more more common ones that I'm going to throw out as a root cause is hypothyroidism. Yes, that was actually going to be my next one I was going to bring up if you hadn't. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, this this is another whole rabbit hole we could go down. Yeah. (laughs) But if nothing else, a beautiful segue is hypothyroidism is associated with higher frequency of gallbladder stones and gallbladder dysfunction. Yeah. Hmm. So... You know, is it that hypothyroidism mucks up your motility and mucks up your gut lining and mucks up your brain and your vagus nerve and the gallbladder? Like what? Pick pick your mechanism. The thyroid interacts with literally every cell of your body. So all hats are off if the thyroid is involved. For sure. And I it's so interesting to me in the thyroid space because so many people in the SIBO arena are doing things that are going to hinder their thyroid when they're working on their SIBO. So oftentimes, even if it's not like Hashimoto's, but I'll see Mm -hmm. lower T3 levels. Mm -hmm. And usually even just manipulating the diet, whether it's increasing carbs or overall calories, but in the SIBO space, carbs are demonized a lot. Yes. And you need a certain level of carbs to to produce an insulin response and insulin's what's going to raise your active thyroid hormones. So oftentimes, even just manipulating carb levels or even calorie levels, I see being super helpful for thyroid issues that aren't like Hashimoto's that are more just Mm -hmm. like suboptimal in nature. But I would say on like 80% of the labs that I see, people have suboptimal thyroid levels. It might not be like below reference range, but I certainly see those. But, you know, gut function's not gonna necessarily be great if thyroid levels are suboptimal. Yeah, yeah, and you're making me think of one patient I'm working with right now. And 
you know, we've we've made some headway together and we're making forward progress, but we keep kind of getting stuck. And I, I was like, look, we've taught her T3, the active form of thyroid hormone for the listeners at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, her T3 is low enough that LabCorp is flagging her as low. Mm-hmm. You know That's your T3 bad. is in the toilet. Yeah. It's bad if you're, because LabCorp's reference range goes down to like 71. So I think that hers, you know, was like 68 or something. And I'm usually raising an eyebrow and squawking about it when it's below like 100 or 110. Yeah. So, you know, from a functional perspective, this is in the freaking toilet. Yeah. But even from a medical perspective, it's low. And the the thing that we talked about in our last appointment was, girl, we've got to get you on some T3. Like, we've tried some of the tricks I have up my sleeve. Yeah. And we're at a point now where I'm like, I don't know if it's going to be a forever thing. I feel like it's not. But it's like, we need to break this vicious cycle where right now your gut's not working and you're inflamed. So you're not converting T4 into T3 and you don't have any T3. But also the, you know, the low T3 is messing with your motility and your gut lining and your brain and whoever knows what else and her hair because she's got hair loss. And it's like, we've got to get ahead of this enough to break the cycle and get you some freaking T3 yeah. so that you can heal your dang body. And that was literally like the bulk of our appointment. This most recent appointment was let's get you to a different endocrinologist because the first one just was like, no, we don't. If you don't need Synthroid, you don't need nothing. Yeah. And <laughs> and that was like the end of the story. So we're like, if your primary care isn't going to prescribe it, we need to pursue an endocrinologist who knows what they're doing and get you on some Cytomel or something that is a T3 product and see if we can at least get ahead of this for a month or two to facilitate the healing. And then we can talk about getting you off of the T3. But my God, you need T3 to heal stuff. And it's just not budging. Yeah. 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 It always makes me nervous when I see people that have, you know, pretty severe drops in T3 levels. Um, Mm -hmm. Usually I would say like the people that I'm, I would say most of the time, they're not necessarily below reference range, but they're certainly suboptimal. But whenever you are dipping towards like low end of what I'd consider optimal um, or out of reference range, like you're certainly going to have symptoms. I know for my, in my particular case, I was low T3 through Mm. like four lab cycles. Um, But (laughs) I was kind of a problem child because I went on T3 and I had like crazy blood sugar swings. Um, Mm like bizarre and so we thought i was having a reaction to the t3 Mm -hmm. um in some weird way who knows what was going on i was like a a hot mess of different things at that particular time but i will say for me and i'm i'm thinking of a recent client too who when i manipulated my diet and when he this was a guy when he manipulated his diet he had been low carb for a really long time And, you know, his T3... They're evil, so obviously. Exactly. His T3 levels were in the toilet. And um, we had just started working together. And he had just had labs done. And he was, like, kind of starting to intro carbs again. And there was already a huge jump in Mm. his thyroid hormones. And it's kind of amazing. There can be micronutrient issues, too. Things like iron. um, Yeah iodine, uh, selenium, selenium. Yeah. Yeah. Zinc is another one, but I think Mm -hmm. like definitely if thyroid's off, 
you need to come up with some plan, whether it's supplementing with um, certain things that might help or actually taking meds just to even to get over a hump. Yeah, I think can be really helpful. And that's something I hear commonly is like people don't want to take medication. Yeah, I'm like I get it, I totally do. Like, I, like we're recording this still during the pandemic in 2020. It's like, if nothing else, if the world goes weird and you don't want to leave your house for a while, like I get that you don't want to have a prescription, uh, but if it facilitates healing. I'm I'm hippy dippy crunchy, but I'm not so crunchy that I'm gonna cut my nose off just by my face and not recommend <laughs> something if I think it's needed. So it's like use the medication for a short period of time. We will have the goal to get you off of it, and then we'll worry about that down the road. But if we need to facilitate healing, let's just do what we need to do. Um, and I will bring us to possibly our last SIBO root cause to talk about. Um, you had mentioned briefly with the thyroid whether or not it's Hashimoto's. And I do think that that's relevant. And I'll share with you this. I had to find this on my Facebook page because I had shared it a few years ago. But there was a study that came out. It looks like it was middle of the year 2017. Um, and here's a quote. They had they had looked at... Um, well, honestly, I don't remember now. Um, it... I believe they were looking at the relationship with Levo and SIBO. And one of the quotes I pulled from it for my Facebook post was, one might speculate that hypothyroidism leads to hypomotility. But surprisingly, levothyroxine therapy was even more associated with SIBO and not able to reverse the effect of hypothyroidism. So they were looking and they were like, all right, if you're currently hypothyroid, is that associated with SIBO? Yeah. Yes. If you were hypothyroid, but now you're on Levo and your levels are normal, is that also associated with SIBO? Yes, even more so than being currently hypothyroid. And I saw some people in, you know, the hippy-dippy functional medicine space, and I could see the writing on the wall, and this is why I did this post, because people already were like, oh, levothyroxine is associated with SIBO. This is terrible. Don't go on Levo. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> let's wait a minute. What that tells me is, and again, I'm going to use my mom because she has Hashimoto's and she's been on levothyroxine since the dawn of time, it feels like, since I was a baby. And autoimmunity starts and you've got some autoimmunity, but you still have the intact tissue and it's able, like in this example, the thyroid is still able to make a normal amount of hormone. That's stage one. Stage number two, you still have the squirrely autoimmune attack because we're progressing. It's stage two. You haven't treated it yet. You still have the autoimmunity, but now the gland is disrupted or compromised to a point where you're going to be hypothyroid. Okay. But it's like early stage. Maybe nobody's done your yearly physical yet. They haven't ordered blood work. So you're hypothyroid. You surely have some symptoms by this point, but you haven't begun the medication. The people who are already on levothyroxine are so more, so much more progressed down the road of possibly, you know, the 90% chance that these people have Hashimoto's. If I was a woman, I would take the 90% odds. Yeah. But 90% of these people on levothyroxine, or probably even more, have Hashimoto's as a root cause. And these are the cases who are not like the freshly diagnosed Hashimoto's people, probably. These are the people where the autoimmunity has progressed to a point 
where now they need replacement for that hormone yeah. because the tissue is that compromised. So to me, it's like, okay, the people who are newly diagnosed with autoimmune or newly diagnosed with hypothyroidism, if they are autoimmune, it's earlier in the progression. So I can see why it's associated with SIBO. The people who are already on Levo, it's like we're observing the same cohort of people, but just X amount of years in the future. So of course, the people on levothyroxine have an even higher incidence of SIBO. And I think it's not that levothyroxine is bad or ineffective or that levothyroxine causes SIBO. Rather, it's that autoimmunity, if left unchecked, is going to compromise stuff. And among the stuff, yeah, I mean, the gut lining, your stomach acid, your motility, your vagus nerve, whatever. Like, But autoimmunity and that inflammation that ensues is not good for the things that you need to prevent SIBO. And therefore, you're going to be much more likely to develop SIBO from what is most likely autoimmunity and not actually the levothyroxine. So that was my takeaway. So I actually, I consider autoimmunity to be a root cause of SIBO. Yeah. And then ironically, SIBO can be a root cause of autoimmunity. So then it's a matter of like the chicken or the egg, depending on your health history and what makes the most sense. But I have seen those cases where you know, something else seemed to start the autoimmunity. And then after that was when the SIBO really started to creep up. And then we're trying to make sense of it down the road. So I do think that managing the immune system and the inflammation and balancing that out is not only helpful for the people with anti-vinculin autoimmunity, but also autoimmunity more broadly, because you may actually have to treat the immune system in order to heal the SIBO. It is a two-way street. For all that we talk about manipulating the immune system via the gut, you could also manipulate the gut via the immune system. And yeah. I do think that that's overlooked. And again, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think anybody's really talking about that two-way street and how the immune system and the autoimmunity directly affects the gut. It's almost always the other way around when I read about it. Yeah, no, that's such a, a great point. And I do think like a- along those lines too, um, I think that the autoimmunity component is huge, even for things like um, Crohn's, celiac. I mean, all those things are highly associated with SIBO as well, just because there's inflammation and you probably get the same nerve type damage that you do in the anti-vinculin arena, the the kind of autoimmune SIBO. You get that Mm -hmm. same sort of damage to the lining. So yeah, I think, again, what you're saying too about manipulating the immune system to help with the inflammation and gut function is really interesting and I think a great point. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm in total agreement there. Yeah. Yep. So uh, let's think. To recap, we talked about... I did want to ask one thing too, because I think like um, a lot of times in the SIBO space too... Just as like a, an aside, um, I think that we talked about like dysbiosis and what that means in, a, in an earlier episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that like a lot of times with SIBO, some of the issues could be because there's low bifido. I mean, that affects the mm-hmm. migrating motor complex. Um, so I yeah. do think that like it's there also could be a root causal factor of what's the overall ecology of your gut. Um, yeah. 
and I did just want to mention that because even things like pathogens, like if you have a pathogen that you haven't treated, um, or just the overall ecology of the gut's not great, I think it's going to affect the immune system. It's going to affect um, inflammation levels. It's going to affect the migrating motor complex. It's going to affect a lot yeah. of areas that are really key to um, dealing with SIBO. That's why clearing's great, but you want to make sure you repair and rebuild the, the microbiome yeah. as a whole to really help control the environment um, and create like a less inflamed um, environment. Yeah. And I think that that dovetails back to your original point of antibiotics potentially yeah, being a root cause sure. of SIBO. Because whether the antibiotics, for example, are disrupting the ecosystem in the small intestine itself, or if they're interrupting or making dysbiotic the environment in the colon microbiota, and then that is impacting inflammation and the vagus nerve and the motility and the MMC, um, I think that's still something that we're getting better quality research on. Uh, but I definitely think it's there. I think that, and this is where it's hard because so many people have had numerous, numerous rounds of antibiotics. Yeah. Uh, even if you haven't ever been diagnosed with SIBO, again, like 87, 87 humans worth of antibiotics in my lifetime. I don't know about you. <laughs> and it's profound to think about what that does to the human body. I mean, the only people I've ever met who have had zero antibiotics in their entire life are the weirdos that I went to chiropractic school with. And I love yeah. them. But like the people I'm picturing, you know, the kids who were second or third generation chiropractors yeah. whose parents are like ultra crunchy and like they've been adjusted since the day they were born. And like I knew a handful of kids like that in chiropractic school and graduate school. And I don't even know how it came up, but that concept of somebody who's never had an antibiotic is so foreign to my brain. Yeah. Because that was such a staple of my childhood. I was like, you what? Like never? Yeah. Never, ever? So, you know, it's very difficult to study that. For I sure. I totally agree. And I, I do think that like some antibiotics are going to be more destructive. It, it yeah. seems like to me than others. Mm -hmm. um, some are just really strong. Um, yeah. some people again, like had an experience where they were on like IV antibiotics and like, mm -hmm. um, re just really strong stuff. And I think that matters too. Uh, and sometimes again, like from my, my thinking and from what I've seen, it tends to be another straw. So like what you're, you yeah. were saying earlier about the triggers, it's not necessarily that like their gut was perfect before that there was probably issues still there. Yeah. Um, but it was an extra straw on to the already storm that was brewing. Yeah. And it's just, it is really unfortunate how like we pop antibiotics like candy. And I'm, I think antibiotic antibiotics are really useful in certain situations. So oh, yeah. I'm also not anti antibiotic either. Um, we do need those in certain situations, but it's like PPIs in my yeah, opinion. Exactly. They both have a place, but they need to pers be prescribed like, you know, it at the current prescribing rate, if we could cut down the prescriptions by 
95% for both of those. It's not that I want to take them completely off the market necessarily, but like reserve the PPIs for the really bad cases, like the fresh bleeding ulcers, the ones that are really raw, you know, like save it for those people. And the people who have reflux or indigestion or whatever, like we need to have other tools in the toolbox to help them because that willy nilly prescription writing for both. And like, I mean, and I've chalked up the antibiotics for years to, I laugh and I, I think about my mom and I'm like, I can imagine my mom being like a Karen, if you will, like go or a Carol and like yeah. going into, I can picture the two of us going into my pediatrician in my mind's eye and I have a very loving and slightly overprotective mother and I love her. Hi mom. And I can picture like if I had the sniffles or if I had an ear infection, if we went into that pediatrician office and they did not write a prescription for me in that moment. <laughs> ooh, yeah. There'd be oh, hell to Robin pay. would not have been happy. She would have lit into them. I'm oh sure. I mean, gosh. I don't remember this in childhood, but I'm sure. She has the capability of being like, no, you write my baby a prescription right now. She is suffering and we need to get rid of this infection. And, you know, I think about these scenarios and I'm like, I I feel sympathetic for the doctors who have written prescriptions because I do think that sometimes like the really overprotective vocal parents played a role and also like just medical school, whatever it is. So I think, you know, I, I have a teeny bit more understanding looking back at like the eighties and nineties, why we were overprescribed antibiotics yeah, and like the helicopter parents and like the, the really intense parents. But then now it still boggles my mind, the overprescribing of antibiotics. And I was like, I thought we were done with that. Yeah. Like we've been talking about the concept of antibiotic resistance. Oh my God. Like this is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Like don't over, like we've been talking about this at least into the 2000s. So you would think that in 2020, prescribers would know not to use these. But I kid you not, I mean, I think it was last year in the winter, like winter 2019, I had, I don't know if I told you this, I had like a cough that wouldn't go away. My daughter was new into preschool and the preschool germs are crazy. Yeah. My mom and my husband and I, we all had this cough and mine didn't go away for like two months. And my mom, being an overprotective, loving mother, was like, you need to go to urgent care. You have a daughter to live for. She was basically (laughs) implying that I'm going to die from this cough. And I was like, oh my God, what if I have pneumonia? Okay, mommy, I'll go. Yeah. So I went in and I told the nurse practitioner, clear as day, eye to eye, we had a come to Jesus moment. And I was like, all right, look, I want to let you know, I'm here because my mom has convinced me I'm dying. And I want you to listen to my lungs and give me your medical opinion. If you think that I need antibiotics, I will take them. However, I have a history of IBS and I have celiac disease and I've got weird gut stuff and I've had a lot of antibiotics in my life. I don't want antibiotics. My preference is to not take antibiotics. So you just, you have to tell me, like, if you really think I need them, I will take them. But shy of that, like, if you don't think they're necessary, I don't want antibiotics, just like, so you know that. She's like, cool. She listened to my lungs in two places, which is another, like, the shoddiest physical exam I've ever had. It's supposed to be seven on each side. Like, I took physical exam. Like, I'm, (laughs) 
I remember this from my doctoral training. Like it's seven on each side, 14 total. But the, she listened to two places. Went, yep, okay, doxycycline. And I was, uh, actually, I think she wanted to write me something else first. And I was like, I can't, I'm allergic to that. So she's like, okay, doxy. And I was like, whoa, okay. I was thinking, man, this is serious. And meanwhile, I asked her for one pill of Diflucan to make sure I didn't get a vaginal yeast infection. You would have thought I asked her for crack cocaine. <laughs> yeah. She was like, well, I, I worried about your liver enzymes. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I measure them every year. I'll tell you they're fine. Yeah. One pill of Diflucan? You really, what? She was going to give me the antibiotic with no problem, but she had a heart to heart with me about the damn Diflucan. Yeah. So then I go home and I'm like, all right, I guess I need this. So I took one pill of the doxycycline and then I looked at the handouts right at the top of the handouts that she threw at me on my way out the door. All about viral bronchitis. First line of the handout, viral bronchitis is, is from a virus and will not respond to antibiotics. So don't take them because it's a viral thing. And I was like, oh, no. And that was my official diagnosis was viral oh bronchitis. And she gave me doxycycline. And I wanted to honestly punch her in the face, but I did not. Side note, yeah, I'm not restraint. actually violent. I, but like, I told her, I like, we made eye contact and had a come to Jesus moment. And I told her point blank, I do not want antibiotics. I'm here for your medical opinion, but I'll yeah. take them if I'm like going to die. And she gave them to me anyway. And I oh, just, and then I listened to my own logs because I have a stethoscope. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that sounds like bronchitis. Yeah. Oh, well, well, you live and you learn. So well, I still, to this day, I have the doxycycline in my cupboard because I'm tick paranoid. And if I get a tick and I think I have Lyme disease, I've taken the doxycycline. Yeah. But just like it's 2019. This is not 1986. Yeah. When we my mom and I going into the pediatrician for an ear infection and my mom giving them hell because they didn't prescribe her baby an antibiotic like this is 2019 and you gave me an antibiotic just for shits and giggles <sighs> i'm gonna calm down i'm gonna pass the mic to you but <laughs> i um, think that one thing about so your story i think you had a come to jesus moment but i don't think she picked up on your come to jesus moment i, I thought i i thought i made myself abundantly clear and i think it's that Honestly, I can't imagine what it's like to work in an urgent care. Yeah. I can't. Because I think th that poor woman is probably so burned out and just like over medicine. Honestly, like every moment with her, I was like, you're like burned out. You need a vacation for a lifetime. Yeah. Um, like you need a different job. You're not happy. But still, like be competent. Be or at least, like, use your ears and listen to your patient. She didn't yeah. use her ears to listen to my lungs very much, but use your ears and listen to your patient when they tell you they don't want antibiotics. But it was just, like, it was so, you know, knee-jerk reflex. Like, yeah, here, prescriptions. What you want, doxycycline? Or what you want, diflucan? Oh, my God. Like, that made her perk up a little bit, the diflucan request. Oh, but not the doxy. You know, take that like candy. It's like a Snickers. Yeah. Just take it. Yeah. <sighs> Man. Anyway, so it is to say we're all doomed. <laughs> we're <laughs> Super not. bugs. Yeah, um, but uh, I think we've covered SIBO root causes pretty in depth. I know? do too. Mucking with your stomach acid, mucking with the microbiome, 
thyroid autoimmunity, the post-infectious model of it, um, you know, adhesions and scar tissue. All of these are on the table. These are some of the most popular uh, stress. Holy crap, I almost forgot that one. Stress and how that affects the human body. Uh, gallbladder stuff. I think these are a few of my favorite things. Yes. And things exactly. I talk about all day. I'm sure you do too. Uh, but I think that's just about a wrap for today. And in the next one, we're going to talk more about that squirrely post-infectious IBS thing. And we're going to go into some of these root causes in more detail as time goes on. And as we record more of this beautiful podcast together. So Amy, thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. And, uh, people tuning in if you are on youtube if you could like this video comment down below and subscribe and ring the bell that will help us grow this channel and grow this lovely podcast and help more people and if you are listening on itunes spotify any of those like podcasting doohickey apps that you have if you could rate us five stars that would be awesome and that also helps us reach more people and just heal the world and heal everybody of their SIBO. So thank you so much. And thank you in advance for your kind reviews and likes and subscribes. And we will talk next time, Amy. Yes, sounds great. All right. Talk to you later.